0: Well, just moving on, it's maybe uh, once in a lifetime that a pastor gets to do what I'm about to do and this is a real moment because uh, right now I'm getting to introduce uh, Pastor Bill Hybels and that genuinely is a privilege. I think I speak unreservedly when I say the impact of uh, Pastor Bill Hybels on the modern church is unparalleled, I think, in the modern day. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, Pastor Bill, who if you don't know is from Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, Uh, that church, the Willow Creek Association that's uh, linked very closely with that church, has a massive impact on the church worldwide. I think uh, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of church leaders every single year are impacted and the way that they're reaching into the world is by reminding churches that they need to be Relevant, reminding churches that they need to reach the lost and helping churches to lead well. On the, uh, moving on from the worldwide level, we're uh, coming back to our own church here, this church. And I don't know how much, honestly, we fully understand it, but this church has been greatly impacted by Willow Creek uh, over many, many years now. In a minute we're about to watch an AV, which just shows how uh, the Willow Creek Association uh, is touching generations to come and we have a look at what the local church can do in that. And beyond our own local church, I'd just say for me personally, um, incredibly blessed by the Ministry of Willow Creek. Jess and I had the opportunity of doing an internship uh, for a short period of time. Massive, great impact on our own uh, uh, leadership life. Uh, Beyond that, I think uh, with um, only the the only exception of my father, I would say that Bill Hybels has had the greatest impact of my life when it comes to leadership and learning leadership lessons. So I I put all that together and then you can imagine the excitement when we heard that uh, Bill was available to speak for us today because we're in a Vision Builders campaign. We're talking about the fact that the church matters, that the church has got a great vision. Uh, that the church is the hope of the world and we wanted to highlight the fact that the church is so important in that whole process and then uh, we find out that one of the greatest champions I think again on the earth today for the local church is willing to come and speak for us and we put all that together and we say we today are a blessed church. So we're going to watch an audio visual which again just highlights what the local church does and just watch for the little moments in this video where you'll see very obviously that the local church impacts not just people but generations to come and as soon as that is finished uh, we're going to put our hands together and welcome Pastor Bill as he comes. Let's watch the AV. Bill Hybels
1: has famously said that there's nothing like the local church when the local church is working well. In 1989 Catalyst Church began a journey of transition we moved from being a very traditional model to a culturally relevant model that was expressing itself in a contemporary manner. And we were able to do this without compromising the message of the gospel. The exciting thing about this period of time is that we've seen the church grow from an attendance of between 60 and 100 people to over 800 attending regularly. We're excited about this because it represents transformed lives and today the church is made up of hundreds of people who have come to Christ through this season when we've been expressing church in this uh, new model.
2: In our early years of being married we had young children and, and we thought we want to raise our kids with morals and values and so we thought well where do you actually get that from? You get it from a church. So that started our journey.
3: And then I met a lady at preschool when my eldest was in preschool, and she asked me, Did I go to church? And at that time, we were thinking about going to church, and so we came along to the play school concert that was held at the church, and there were people around that were smiling and friendly, and I thought, Wow, what a really cool place to be.
2: So we started coming along to a Sunday night service, which was called New Directions at the time. When we got here, it was so different to what I was used to, which was a traditional church growing up. I came along to a church that was relevant and and contemporary and and actually spoke to me right where I was at. We were running a business at the time and so it it talked on topics like finances and and how they apply to me and and what the Bible even says about that. It really grabbed my attention.
3: Music was wonderful as well. Uh, I loved the music from day one, the worship and, and praise. I felt so at home even though I had never been in church uh, growing up. And as Tim said, it was, it was relevant to what we were doing. Every Sunday night message was about something that was relevant to us in our life and gave us tools of how to do different things and started um, teaching us how to be Christians without us really knowing that that's what was happening.
2: And everyone was really friendly. That was what was really good. It was a real warm atmosphere. People used my name and talked to me and addressed me and there was zero pressure on what I needed to do next. It was just inviting me back. And that was the great thing. So I could journey along at my pace. So continue on our journey. Here we are 15 years later with five children and every single one of them love Jesus and serve here at the local church.
4: Praise the Lord! that look for?
1: I'm really excited to be able to introduce our second family now and they have a very special place in my heart because as far as I can work out, uh, this is the family that came to faith first after we transitioned the church from the traditional model to the culturally relevant model. What got you here? Who did you connect with? Who were the people in your life that got you to Catalyst the first time?
5: Well, it started with my neighbour, who had moved in just next door. Um, It was a very close-knit neighbourhood, so we spent a lot of time together. We had coffees together. Um, Our kids were in each other's yards, Mm. um, and she started talking about church. Um, She started talking about a ladies' group that she was involved in, and it really started to sound to me like a very personal Um, church and community where you could just be yourself. Uh, It was very different to traditional churches that I'd been to. I loved the way they used drama and music and I felt that what was being said really related to my life.
1: Now, Wayne, you kind of came into our life uh, at a time when it seemed to us that you didn't want anything to do with us. I mean, how many years was it from when you began to when you actually crossed the line of faith? No idea. Well, it was was four or five years, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, at least that long. Yeah, Yeah, probably five years.
1: Yeah, exciting. One of the highlights of your journey from my perspective was uh, a baptismal service. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there and watching everyone else getting baptised, and
5: something just came over me. And I just walked up to you and said, you better baptise me now or it won't happen again.
1: Well, that's pretty well what it was like because this guy came out of the crowd and he said, Yep, I'm ready to be baptised. I said, We'll make arrangements for you. And you said, No, right now. And you stepped into the pool in your Sunday clothes, and the rest is history. That's right. Exciting time.
5: Well, we're all attending Catalyst Church and all serving in the church. Corinne and Josh serve in the creative ministries, and Josh does the car park. Amy. Wayne and I are all serving in tiny land and we do occasional catering when the opportunity comes up and Benjamin is a steward here. So not only that but we're passing on God's truths to this next generation.
1: You've just heard from two families at Catalyst Church and there are hundreds of people who we could have talked to today but... Really what we want to do in this moment is once again acknowledge you Bill for the incredibly important role that you have played in the history of our church. Uh, You have inspired us, uh, you have led us and you have mentored us, albeit from a distance but nevertheless uh, that has been our experience and for those reasons we will always honour you, love you and respect you and we are so glad that you are here today you just to
0: stand to your feet and just welcome Pastor Bill Hybels as he comes.
4: Very kind. Thank you, everybody. It is very touching for me to uh, watch a video like that, and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't involved in the changing of those lives, but to uh, I never cease uh, to be moved by changed lives, by watching a family change, and then children change, and then the next generation change. Uh, that still, to me, is one of the uh, great miracles in all of life. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. I think I was in this or on your property one time, uh, 20-some years ago, and that was the only time I uh, remember ever being here. A couple decades have passed. The place looks quite different. Uh, Exciting to see the new plans and uh, how this church is moving ahead. So very, very proud of uh, the activity of of God in your church. Uh, It's been a joy knowing Philip and Carl over the years, mostly Philip. Uh, I've traveled with him uh, throughout the states, uh, throughout Australia as we train leaders. That's one thing that I'm very passionate about. Uh, I think uh, everybody wins when a leader gets better, and so what we've tried to do is train leaders all over the world, and Philip has been a a great, great advocate for that and a tremendous friend uh, for a long, long time. I've been asked today to talk a few moments about the church, and ironically, if uh, I were to give an honest talk about it, I would have to start by saying uh, in my first 18 years, the only word that would capture my feelings about the church would be the word hopeless. I felt the church was hopeless. Uh, I grew up in a failing church. It was lifeless, loveless, and powerless. Uh, It was so lifeless and powerless, I knew that as soon as I became of age and could leave it, I would, and I would never come back. When I was driving to church one time with my father, who was a cosmopolitan business person. He mentioned that one of his business friends just learned that his wife had cancer. So my dad was saying, maybe I ought to invite my business buddy to come to church. That guy had no church background whatsoever. He said, I might just ask him to come to church for this next week. Uh, I was 10 years old or so at the time. And as soon as my dad said he might bring a non-churched friend to our church, I said, please, dad, don't do that whatever spark that might get ignited in him uh, through his wife's cancer, uh, our church will extinguish that spark in 60 minutes. Uh, we will drive him further away from God uh, if he comes to our church. So I was so cynical about the church, felt it was so hopeless, I was protecting people from, from ever coming to it because I thought it would hurt them. Uh, Our church eventually got so weak uh, and sick that it died, literally. Our church died, and the property was sold, and everybody walked away. So uh, the first 18 years of my life, uh, I thought the church was utterly hopeless. In the next phase of my life, years maybe 18 to 35, if you looked at my sentiments about the church, uh, the word would change from hopeless to hopeful hopeful. And if you know anything about hope, you know, I mean, that's quite a change from hopeless to um, hopeful. Uh, I went to a college and my professor at that college uh, started talking to me about what a church could be, what a church might be if it were to ever mimic the church in Acts chapter 2. And sometimes in his lectures, he'd get all amped up And he would talk about the beauty and the power and the potential of the local church. And he would describe that in Acts chapter 2, the church people got so close to each other that they called each other brothers and sisters and they took their masks off and they self-disclosed and really they functioned like a loving family. Uh, They worshiped with great joy and liberty. They prayed bold prayers and God answered them with Miracles, signs and wonders and so. What was going on in that church in Acts chapter 2, my professor kept saying, uh, was of such interest and there was so much power that people outside the church actually wanted to figure out what it was that was going on inside the church. Often at the end of these lectures, my college professor would say, students, is God still transcendently powerful? Does the Holy Spirit still have his stuff? Does Jesus Christ still redeem and restore lives? Are the scriptures still sharp as a two-edged sword? Can they pierce through into people's hearts and lives? He would ask those questions, and we, you know, wouldn't know what he was driving at. And then he would say, then answer me why there can't be a dynamic, powerful Acts 2 church in our culture, in our city, and in our day. And then kind of his, the climax of his challenge was he would say, and I think someone in this classroom should cancel his career plans or her life plans and dedicate every day of the rest of his or her life to the establishment and the building of one of these Acts 2 churches in our culture, in our day. I would sit in the back row of the class. I was a commuting student at the time, kind of just come in and out. And sometimes I would sit in the back row and just choke off the emotion. Uh, What he was talking about grabbed me because I had never thought of what a church could be. I never thought of what a church should be. I had only seen the one I was in, and I had called it hopeless. And uh, after a few months of listening to Dr. Belizik in casting that vision about what a church could be, if it were built and and uh, constructed like an Acts 2 church, well, uh, I got seized by that vision, the vision of the the beauty and power and potential of a church. And, you know, vision's a powerful thing. I don't know if you've ever been seized by one, but if you've been seized by one, you know it. I mean, you can feel it to your toes. A vision is a picture of the future that produces passion in people. Uh, Vision makes people say, I can't stay like I am anymore. I must move ahead into the future. Uh, Vision propels people forward who would normally just stay where they are. It puts a bounce in your step when you'd be dragging your feet normally. People live for visions, and more often than you would think, people die for visions. Such is its power. And, uh, boy, I just got bit by that vision of what a church might be if it were ever really constructed like the Acts 2 church was constructed. So one day, uh, I left my hometown, my family, my friends. I left a business that my dad had spent 35 years preparing for me to run. And when I told him I was leaving uh, my hometown and not going to take up his business, it broke his heart in half. It's the toughest thing I've ever done. Uh, but I moved three hours away from where I grew up. To help a friend of mine who was leading a youth group at the time. And uh, so, the lessons that I was learning from my college professor about how cool the church could be, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to uh, try to take all those lessons I'm learning about what a church could be and apply them to these 25 students in this little youth group in a local church. So, I started teaching the kids about the church. I started teaching the kids how their lives could be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. I was teaching 15- and 16-year-old kids that they had spiritual gifts that they could put to use in the youth group so that they could feel the thrill of God using their young lives as they were building this youth group. I taught them about the beauty of community, that they could open up their lives to each other. I taught them how to forgive each other and how to reconcile broken relationships. I just went right down through the teachings of of scripture. One of the things I taught them was the explosive power of the message or the gospel of how lost people can get found. And uh, when I was teaching about that one time, uh, I got all fired up about the power of the gospel. And I said, in fact, let's try it out sometime. Let's put a date on the calendar in the future And let's all fast and pray. And on the appointed date in the future, all of us will invite our high school friends. I was in college at the time. I'll invite college, some of my college friends that don't know Christ. We'll get all these people who don't know Christ. We'll have a fantastic outreach night. And uh, I will explain in about 15 minutes how someone far from God can be reconciled to him. What do you think? We'd never done anything like that before. So we thought, all right, let's do it. And boy, kids fasted and prayed and invited, and and, uh, I did the same thing. So the appointed evening arrives, and uh, we had music that just rocked, and we had a lot of fun with drama and dance and all these cool things. And then it came time for me to have to stand up and present the message of how someone far from God can be brought close, can become adopted sons and daughters in his family. And I remember saying to all these high school students who were far from God, and it sounded like a cliche, but I wanted them to know. So I said, students, even though you've, you're not religious, even though most of you have never been to a church and you don't know the Bible, God loves you. The God you don't, you're not even sure exists, He loves you. And if you can't sort that, the person who's sitting in your chair is someone God loves, think about it, think about it. And then I explained how Jesus came to take our place and take upon himself our wrongdoings. I explained, you know, substitutionary atonement, essentially. And then I said, and if you would like to be reconciled, have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to this God who really loves you... um, Here's what you do. And I got to that point in the message and realized I would never given an invitation before. I didn't know what to ask them to do. Our church never gave invitations, and I'd never seen one. So I was struggling a little bit. And I said, so if you're interested in this, why don't you stand up right where you are? I didn't know what else to say. I said, just stand up. And about 250 kids stood up. There were 1,000 kids there that night. Like 250 stood up. And I, all of a sudden, I panicked because I thought that I had been confusing to them. I, I thought that what I must have said is if you already are Christian, stand up. And so I thought, oh, I said it wrong. So again, I, it's like 20 years old. Give me a break. So I, I, I said, hey, you know what? I think I, I said something confusing. Could all of you sit down? And you know these kids, some some of these kids had already begun, they were quite emotional and they were like, do you want us to stand up or sit down? What do you want? And I said what I want to do is make sure that what I said to you was clear and I want to make sure that if you're going to make a decision that you make it, you know uh, with full understanding. And so I just did round two. I said God loves you and you've done some stuff wrong and sins need to be forgiven and if you Put your faith and trust in Christ. He will, he will clean up your past. He will guide your future. His Holy Spirit will take up residency in your life. He will secure your eternity. And if you want him to be the leader of your life and the forgiver of your sin, would now, I think I've made it clear now, if you would like that, would you please stand? And this time, even more kids stood. And we prayed with individual students, somewhere between 250 and 300 of them, all the way to midnight. I dragged some deacons out of a meeting where they didn't know what they were doing anyway, so we said, come over and help us, because these, these kids need some, you know, need some help. So anyway, well, we get done uh, with that service. I was the last person to leave the church, and I had a key to lock up the church. And so I'm walking out just exhausted and and uh, what, what would I say? Uh, my mind was blown. Every circuit in my mind was blown. Because, you know, the only church I ever knew was a hopeless church that died. And then I see this manifestation of the power of God in one night in 253, 250 to 300 students. So I locked the church door. And I remember backing up against a masonry wall, red brick wall. And my knees collapsed. I couldn't take it anymore. I was overly emotional or just mind-blown or something. So I slid. My back slid all the way down till I collapsed on the sidewalk. I just burst out crying. And I was just like, God, I have never seen anything like that happen before in my life. And uh, my professor is telling me that the local church is the hope of the world. And it, it, it can do extraordinary things, but I've never seen a manifestation of power like this. And I made a commitment on the sidewalk that night. I, uh, I had a Bible in my hands, and I said, God, I will keep teaching this if you keep doing that. I will keep teaching this if you keep doing that. And I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, that's a deal. That's a deal. And can I just take a quick time out here, gang? You know, uh, we have a God who will honor your words when you share your faith. It doesn't have to be in front of a big crowd. It can be with your brother-in-law. It can be with someone at work, uh, someone in the neighborhood. Sometimes you have to make a, a commitment to God where you say, I'm willing to be an ambassador for you, a spokesperson for you. And if I Speak the message clearly, God, then would you please do that supernatural thing that only you can do. Well, on the sidewalk, man, that night I made the commitment. I said, uh, I will keep teaching God's word if you'll keep doing that kind of thing that you did. Uh, So uh, in the years thereafter, I left that little youth group and we started a church from nothing. Willow Creek Community Church in a rented movie theater. Sometimes I'm asked... Uh, why did we call our church Willow Creek Community Church? Um, it sounds like a pretty name, doesn't it? Willow Creek Community Church. Well, we were, I was sitting in an, in an attorney's office signing papers because you have to sign some papers legally to start a church. And uh, I'm signing the papers, and we get to the end, and he says, oh, you've got to name your church something. And I went, oh, And and he said, you got any name? And I said, I I haven't given that a moment's thought. He he said, well, you're meeting in a movie theater, right? I said, yeah. He said, what's the name of the theater? I said, it's the Willow Creek Theater. He said, why don't you call it Willow Creek Community Church? I said, sounds good to me. So (laughs) that's how spirit led uh, our whole church is. But anyway, we uh, we started uh, services in that movie theater. We were in the movie theater for six and a half years. And uh, they showed horror movies on Saturday nights. And uh, a lot of times the janitors wouldn't clean up because they knew we would clean, uh, our, clean it up ourselves on Sunday mornings because we were going to hold church there. And uh, sometimes the horror movies made people so horrified that they would throw up and there would be pools of vomit all over and then people would leave. So our, uh, our folks who loaded our truck with sound equipment would call my wife Lynn and me and say, you know, you got to come over early this morning. You know, they had a bad movie and bring your buckets. Six and a half years, gang, we're in that movie theater. And many, many times before services, Lynn and I would crawl through the rows with uh, buckets and soapy water and clean up other uh, people's vomit. And uh, then go back home, take a shower, come and do all the services. And so what I'm saying is those days were uh, they were hard whenever you start a church you know, you, you go through some stuff. It, it's, it's not as sexy as it sounds, okay? So anyway, um, but then we were finally able to buy property, and we had kind of vision campaigns like you're in right now. Uh, I think it's always cool when a church has a new vision, like you have a new vision now, and your whole campus is going to change in the next couple of years. I hope I can see it when it's all done. But anyway, we had some vision campaigns and built buildings and so But there was a next move that was going to happen in my life about 15 years into uh, Willow Creek Church. The first move, remember, I said the church was hopeless. Now that other next move, start of the youth group, I said, it's more hopeful. Uh, The next move was the move to where I actually was convinced in my heart that the local church was the hope of the world. And I want to explain to you exactly how I came to that conclusion. It'll only take me a few minutes but I had an experience that happened in an airport that led me to that conclusion that I've held on to ever since. Uh, I was sitting in the gate of an airport, waiting to board a plane, and two little boys started tussling uh, on the quarry tile, right in front of where all the seats were. I was reading a newspaper, and I could tell that they were, you know, kind of slapping each other, starting a little tussle, and I just, Uh, Looked over the top of my newspaper to see where the parents were in case this got out of hand. Uh, I'd like to know that the the parents were close by. Couldn't identify the parents. All of a sudden, again, I'm reading the paper again, and the the nine-year-old, I think one is nine, the other was seven perhaps. The nine-year-old wound up and hit this seven-year-old so hard right in the face that it knocked the kid off his feet, and the first thing that hit the quarry tile floor was his head. And uh, I didn't know if, it was, if he was cut on the back of his head or his nose was bleeding, but there's, there's a pool of blood under his head. He's crying, you know, uh, uncontrollably. And I throw my newspaper down, and by the time I get over to these two little boys, the older of the two is just bashing this kid in the face with a closed fist. And I was like, what in God's name is happening here? Where are the parents? This was very upsetting to me. I grabbed the older kid, and when I remove him from the younger kid, he's the, this older kid starts flailing away at me. And he's just, he's just uh, out of control w- with anger and violence and this kind of stuff. Finally, I get him kind of under control. And some other people came over to help. And then the flight attendant, a flight attendant comes by and says, uh, if you're Mr. Hybels, this whole plane is waiting for you. And uh, if you're going to get on that flight, you've got to leave right now. And I said, I'm kind of busy. And uh, they said, all right, but we'll take care of this. We'll find the parents and all that. You get on the flight. So I did. I sat sat down by a window seat, and I wanted to forget what had just happened in that waiting area. It bothered me. Violence always bothers me. And among such young kids, it was very upsetting to me. So I was going to read a sailing magazine or watch a movie or something, and the, the Holy Spirit just said, no, 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 no. I want you to think through this, and I want you to really think it through. Think of that nine-year-old who was filled with anger and violence. What's his li- how is his life likely to unfold? Like, is he going to get honors in school, and then is he going to marry a sweetheart and have a, buy a home with a picket fence and be a person who contributes to community? Is that the trajectory that kid's life is on? I said, I don't think so. And then the Holy Spirit asked me, what, what path is he on then? And I thought to myself, well, if he's using fists at nine years old, uh, he gets a little older, he's going to use knives, and then he's probably going to get a gun someday, then he's probably going to kill someone someday, then he's going to go to prison, and then he'll rot in prison, and then wind up in hell. That's how I think his life is going to go. It's going to be fists, knives, guns, prison, hell. That's how I think it's going to go. And then the Holy Spirit goes, Well, Bill, what could possibly change the trajectory of his life? What are the options? What could possibly change how his life is going to unfold? Will government pass a new law that's going to change the composition of that kid's heart? Is some business somewhere going to create a new product that will transform that kid's heart? Will a university finally come up with a really cool class that will change the hate and the violence in that kid's heart. And the answer to all of these options was, of course, no. And then all of a sudden this thought came crashing into my head. Bill, some fired up Christ follower from a church is going to have to strategically intersect the life of that hate-filled kid someday and say, I don't know what happened to you earlier in your life that hurt you so badly that makes you want to hurt everybody else. But I'm here to tell you there is a love in heaven with your name on it. And I want to explain God's love for you. I know you'll probably be resistive to it at first, but I want to explain God's love to you. And I want to take you to our church where there's a whole bunch of people who will love you just as you are. Because they've been loved just as they were. And together... We're going to help sort out what happened to you. And together, we're going to see if God can put his love in your heart and maybe we can help your life go uh, uh, down another path. I sat on the plane that day and I realized, wait a minute, the message of Jesus Christ is the only message powerful enough to change the path of a person's life. And I thought to myself, if the message of Christ is, is the only power that can do that, and if that message has been entrusted primarily to local churches, then I took out a little piece of paper and I wrote this sentence down for the first time in my life. Then the local church is the hope of the world. Because it has the only message that can transform a human life. And I thought business isn't the hope, government isn't the hope, education isn't the hope. The local church is the only final hope for this world. Boy, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I could hardly wait to tell my wife about it. Man, I ran into the house when I got back from that trip, told her about what had happened in the gate area and how I went through that whole process. And I said, Linda, you know, I was just bursting telling her that I finally, you know, got the conviction that the local church is the hope of the world. She goes, Yeah, 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 set the table. The kids are starving. And uh, I said, Well, I'll explain it better maybe tomorrow. Since that day on that airplane, uh, I have lived with that conviction. And if you pointed a gun at me and said, uh, do you still hold that conviction? I'd say, pull the trigger. I believe to my toes that the local church is a hope of the world. And when I went into work at the church shortly after that trip, I remember saying, if the local church is a hope of the world, then I got to get Willow Creek operating at the zenith of its potential because it is, in fact, the hope of the world. And if the church really is the hope of the world, each of its attenders really, really matters. They are the church, you know, it's not the buildings. So I got to help every person live full on for God. I got to help every member find his or her spiritual gift get them deployed so they can feel the thrill of God using them and so that they can make the maximum contribution to the church. And if the local church is the hope of the world, I got to get people in my church who have leadership gifts to lead really well and people with teaching gifts to teach really well and people with administrative gifts to use their gifts and shepherding gifts to use their gifts. And so I got to train the rich people to care for the poor. We got to grow young people up so that it's just natural for them to love God and for them to believe that the holy, that the local church is the hope of the world. And another thing happened to me: I started to realize I got to help every other church that I can, not just Willow Creek Church. Because if the local church is the hope of the world, I got to help every church try to reach its potential for Christ. And that changed me into into someone who cares about other churches than just about caring for my own. Anyway, uh, that had a huge, huge uh, impact on my life that day, coming to the conviction that the local church is the hope of the world. For the last couple years, though, I've been asking a different question, and that is, will the local church, the hope of the world, be able to sustain itself to the end of time? I mean, that's a deep question, isn't it? Will the local church be able to sustain itself to the end. There's a lot of people who are pessimistic about a church, about church. They see churches closing down, they say it's dead, almost dead in Europe. It's not true, but a lot of people uh, say that it is. And you know, uh, empires, full empires that were supposed to be permanent fixtures in history, like the Persian Empire, Roman Empire, Ottoman Empire, you know, huge empires that were supposed to be fixtures have come and gone, you know. Multi-billion dollar multinational corporations that were thought to be permanent fixtures have come and gone. In the United States, uh, you know, Standard Oil Company, this is the largest oil company uh, in the United States uh, evaporated, went out of business, went bankrupt, it's gone. Nabisco, Schwinn Bicycle, Lehman Brothers, Eastern Airlines, all, uh, tens of thousands, some of these companies, hundreds of thousands of employees, and they're gone. So why would we have any confidence that this thing called the church can outlast empires, multi-generational dynasties, and worldwide companies? And I think what we have to do is go to the scriptures, and Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church, Jesus talking, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What gives us confidence in our churches, in the church's sustainability, is who it is that's building it, who's in charge of it, who is regenerating it, who's recreating it from age to age, and who's protecting it throughout history. And that's none other than Jesus himself, God's son, second person of the Trinity, sustainer of the church till the end of time. My mentor, this Dr. B that I talked about, is fond of saying uh, the only thing that Jesus is doing between when he ascended to the Father and when he comes back for his own The only thing he's doing is building his church. He's not directing the angelic choir. They sing fine without him. He's not fretting about the planets spinning out of their orbits because they're behaving nicely. He's not taking long naps or doing crossword puzzles. His full-time focus attention 24-7 is on building his church, the hope of the world. And he builds it in Singapore and Sydney, in Mumbai and Mexico City, in Shanghai, and in Chicago, and in places all over the world. And uh, as he builds it, he does this incredible thing. As he builds it in various places all over the world, and right here in this room in Ipswich, he taps people on the shoulder by the power of his Holy Spirit. And this happens one by one by one. And he says, hey Phil, hey Pam, hey Jason, hey Ashley. I have a critical role for you to play as I'm building my church in this location. Part of the reason why I called you to myself, part of the reason I redeemed you from sin and gifted you with spiritual gifts and prepared you your whole life was for you to be able to step into this particular critical role in the church that I'm building here. I need you, Jason. I need you, Phil. I need you, Pam. Will you please join me as I build my church? It is the hope of the world, you know. Now, if you've ever felt that kind of tap on your shoulder from the second person of the Trinity, and if you're a Christian, I'm sure at some point you have felt God tap you on the shoulder about engagement in his church. How do you say say no to God who's asking you to join him in the privilege of building his church, the hope of the world. Do you say, hey, you know what, God? Uh, even though you're building your church, hope of the world, I'm pretty busy building my thing. Uh, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty busy with my golf game, my net worth, my retirement activities or so. So you go ahead, God. You keep building your church. I, I grant you permission. You, keep go, you, you go ahead and build your church. Uh, I'll keep building what I'm building. I plead with you, every one of you, don't be that guy. Don't be that woman. Uh, In my view, the morning prayer of every sincere Christ follower on planet Earth should be a prayer like this. God, this new day, I freshly commit myself to the role that you've invited me to play as you are building your church in this world. I am awestruck again today that you would include me in this grand, life-giving, world-transforming endeavor called the church. So today, I joyfully, my God, offer you my heart, my talents, my energy, my creativity, my faithfulness, my resources, and my gratitude. I commit all of myself to the role you've assigned to me in the building of your church so that, at, so that it might thrive in this world. And God, I will bring it today. I will bring my best. You deserve it. Your church deserves it. It is, in fact, the hope of the world. I wonder if you've ever prayed a prayer like that. And I wonder what would happen if every person in this church would pray that daily prayer saying, I will do the role you've called me to do, and I will bring it. I will bring my best throughout the week to play my role in the grand redemptive scheme of things. If every person in this church were to make a commitment like that, this church would see an explosive manifestation of the Spirit's power. And if you've ever seen one of those or been a part of it, you know, it sort of changes you for good. I want to close by telling you something pretty explosive that happened in our church a couple weeks ago at our Easter service. The artist in our church, months ago told me they wanted to push the envelope and and do a very creative program during their part of the Easter service. So they said, uh, we're going to do like a 28-minute media and original music presentation of the Creation, Fall, Redemption, Restoration movements, the grand arc of redemptive history. And uh, they said then, you'll have your normal, you know, 30 minutes to preach or something like that. That's great. They said throughout this whole... Media thing they were doing, there was going to be the score playing sensitively underneath of Amazing Grace. And the more I thought and prayed about it, I thought, you know, what I might do? I might, and I've decided to do this. I had a song sheet of the song Amazing Grace printed up for everyone who came to our Easter services. I made it look like it was a two hundred year old page from a hymn from a hymnal. See three verses, had the music on it and everything, uh, kind of parchment-style paper, a little frayed around the edges and so, and I put some signature lines around some of the words, some of the phrases, and I decided I was going to preach from the song sheet of Amazing Grace. So the creative part of the program went very well, people were moved, and I said, gang, take out your song sheets. You've been hearing the song Amazing Grace. Let me tell you a little about the song. And then I said, now I want to take you through some of the, the verses. And the first verse says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, what? Wretch. And everyone said it. At Willow, we have a large auditorium. Thousands of people said at the same time, wretch. And then everybody laughed together. No one had ever heard that many people say wretch. And I said, thank God there's no wretches in this church. You know, we see wretches on the evening news, don't we? The rapists, the terrorists, child molesters, and so. We see wretches on the evening news. Thank God there's none in church, right? Then I explained how the writer of that song, John Newton, had one time benchmarked his own level of goodness against the blazing brilliance of the holiness of God. And when he understood God's perfection and total righteousness and holiness for the first time, and he benched himself, benchmarked himself against the standard of God's holiness, the only word that described the gap to John Newton, the author of the song, is he said, if God's perfect, that would make me like a wretch. So I asked the congregation, have you ever benchmarked yourself? not against the people on the evening news. Have you ever benchmarked yourself against the blazing brilliance, the absolute perfection of a holy God? Have you ever done that comparison? Well, you could have heard a pin drop in the church. And I said, well, it's going to happen someday. You will be benchmarked. And uh, that gap will be very obvious, but if you want to benchmark yourself today, you can. And if you want to use the word that John Newton used and that I call myself, then there's a little signature line. Why don't you say that saved amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And sign your name. Call yourself a wretch. Just not a wretch compared to your colleagues. We all know you're good compared to your colleagues. Just got a gap with the holiness of God. I said, so just sign your name there if, if, if that's you. So people did. And then I got to the part where it says was blind, was, was blind but now I see. And I said, what does that word, what does it mean? And all the, all the author was saying was he, was he spent most of his life blind to grace. Blind to grace. Do you know how most people misunderstand the, or they don't understand the difference between justice, mercy, and grace? Justice is getting precisely what you deserve. Justice is getting precisely what you deserve. Mercy is getting a little less than you deserve. You get a break, time off, you know. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. Mercy is getting a little less than you deserve. Grace is receiving a gift you don't deserve. Receiving a gift you don't deserve. So I talked to people. I talked all the people through amazing grace, salvation as a gift that cannot be earned. It's a gift of grace that must be received, you see. I said, if you've never seen grace for, for its full beauty, if you never understood it until today, then write today's date down, April. April, yeah, Easter, uh, 2014. And I could see people writing that down. And then I had a couple other little phrases from the song uh, that we worked to. Then at the end, I said, okay, let's all stand up and sing the song Amazing Grace. And as people were singing it, a lot of people had their song sheets up in the air. They were waving it. I was like, wow, it's like a rock concert here, you know, so they're all doing that. And I said, now I'm going to dismiss you. You can all leave. But if some of you saw your need before God for the first time today, called yourself a wretch, signed your name, and if some of you saw grace for what it really is, a gift you don't deserve, salvation, a gift you don't deserve and you wanted to receive it, and you put that you saw grace clearly today. Well, if you'd like, I have a Bible for you and a reading plan in the Bible where you can uh, know how to read your Bible for the next 30 days. It tells you right where to read it. So if any of you would like one of those, show me your paper. I got to see that you're a wretch, and I got to see that you just saw grace today. Those are the qualifications. That's, all right, and everybody laughed, and I was quite sure everyone was going to leave. And you know when pastors present the gospel sometime and then ask people to decide one way or another about it then they kind of back up i had a cross that was up on the stage i just stood alone you know back by the cross and i thought well i'll just hang here for a few minutes (laughs) because probably no one's gonna fight against all the people that are leaving and sure enough a little line forms and And so they started coming up. I said, show me your paper. You got to be a wretch to make it in my line here. And they're like, yeah, I I saw myself as a wretch. And did you see grace for the first time? Yes, I did. And I started praying with people, giving them these Bibles. And pretty soon I looked and the, the line was really long. And a couple of my pastor colleagues came up. We had a second cross on the other side. And now the line's real deep there and real deep there. And I'm realizing we're watching we're watching something that I described to you in the early part of the service. We're watching an outpouring of hundreds of people responding to the gospel uh, at, at the same time and or at one time. And I was just like, "Oh God, are you doing this again?" You know, 40 years later, you're doing one of these things. So we had five services, and uh, just at our campus. Then our multi sites had a bunch of them too. But we had uh, we had more people come to Christ uh, this Easter than at any other single event we've ever done in the history of Willow. And at one time, with four of us uh, saying prayers with people, lines went all the way out to our lobby with four lines. And, and uh, what I liked was just the, like it was a 78-year-old woman who stood in my line, and she was an agnostic. And I said to her, an agnostic for 78 years? And she goes, no one ever told me to benchmark myself against the holiness of God. Nobody ever told me about grace. And she said, I see who I am and I see my need. And I prayed with her. A business guy came up and he said, listen, man, I've earned everything I've ever got. And you're telling me today I can't earn salvation. I said, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You got to be like a little kid and put your arms out and receive the gift of redemption. Just receive it as a gift you don't deserve. And this guy starts bawling, and he goes, I'm not the receive a gift type. I'm the earn it type. I'm the strive for it type. I'm a competitor. I go, well, it doesn't work that way. And so he puts his hands out, and I prayed with him, and he rocked him, you see. My favorite was a Harley guy who came up all, yeah. You know, just looked like an absolute mess. And I said, you're obviously a wretch. He said, yeah, we don't have to spend any time on that at all. And I said, but you received grace. You saw grace for the first time. He goes, if grace is how you described it, he goes, that's the coolest concept I've ever heard. I need it in my life. So when I was driving home from church that day, I thought, you know, I've been at this 40 years. And still, there is nothing, in my view, that compares to the beauty or wonder of God transforming a human life. There's no amount of money, there's no amount of fame, there's no amount of power, there's no amount of pleasure, in my view, that matches the thrill of watching God touch and transform a human life do you agree with that yeah i do too and what what carl has planned in this new vision as your church moves ahead uh, you're going to see more transformed lives and more transformed young people and this acts to church in this community is going to become beautiful and stronger in its witness And it's going to have a deeper impact on this community. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that from a distance. So anyway, that's all I had to say. Blessings, everybody. Thanks for having me come.